heat surrounds a group of professional bank robbers who start to feel the heat from <laughs> police when they unknowingly leave a clue at their latest heists, while both sides attempt to find balance between their personal and professional lives. Unknowingly leave a clue. Yeah, I don't... That is quite a... Uh, uh, they murdered three people. I think yeah. that's pretty knowing. <laughs> Welcome into Film Tank, the weekly podcast that covers both new and classic cinema. On this episode of Film Tank, we discuss the Michael Mann classic, which is 1995's Heat, starring Al Pacino and Robert De Niro. If you would like to get in touch with Film Tank, you can always email us at filmtankshow at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Film Tank Show. And you can listen to all of our episodes on our website, filmtankshow.com, or on iTunes. And now, here are your hosts, Nick Cheney, Toussaint Egan, and myself, Alex Diekman. Hey there, everybody, and welcome in to episode 139 of Film Tank. Getting up there. Yeah, we're ready. I feel like we just did uh, episode 100 for Predator. I feel like we just did 138. Like that, I feel like that's the last one we just did. <laughs> You may be right on that. I'm not sure. That other charming voice you hear is oh. Nicholas Cheney. Hey! No one calls me Nicholas. I do. No, I'm not saying, like, no one can. I just <laughs> meant, you know, thank no you. No one does. Yeah. <laughs> just me and you this week. Uh, hoping to have a guest or a main host for the yeah. next episode or two. We'll see. Yep. Yep. We'll see. But again, this week, just me and you, which right. the audience will just have to fucking deal with. That's right. So all zero of you. <laughs> well, no, actually, you know, I I make that joke a lot, but I will say because I make that joke a lot, <laughs> um, that I do hear from quite a few people that always tell me that they listen. So okay, I'm gonna stop making that joke and I'm gonna bump it up to all five of you. Okay, you know what? That's okay. We don't yeah. we don't really do this to get. That's pretty clear. Yeah, now. over two years clear. in, we we're, do we're this not... for our own satisfaction pretty much i mean we're this is this is now three years of episodes yes i tell everybody Mm -hmm. and i mean everybody Mm -hmm. uh as far as like why i do that not that they ask but whatever but i'm like oh yeah every wednesday night i you know i had a podcast or Mm -hmm. whatever Mm -hmm. and i'm always like it's it's my version i don't know if you'd feel the same but it's i call it my version of poker night you know just a reason to get together watch a movie talk about a movie and drink yeah, that's pretty, and that's, you know, really the reason why we've never necessarily pursued trying uberly hard to make it anything yep. bigger. Like, there are a lot of podcasts out there. There are. Uh, that, well, first of all, there are. Yeah. And secondly, there are a lot of podcasts that uh, work really hard to gain listeners, and that's great because yep. you really should, and we just yeah, really it makes sense. don't that hard. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and we really should try at least a little harder. Maybe but, one day. Yeah, we've been saying that for three years. <laughs> okay, I'll say this. Mm-hmm. I've always had a vision in which I've never felt comfortable doing that sort of thing 
until we had a backlog. Okay, so now we We've have got over, a backlog. I was gonna say now we I do. Mean, so now I feel like maybe we can and I should, you know, start to. W- I mean, when we but, started, it was like let's get a few episodes under our belt. And it's yeah. 139. Now, but I always felt so, uncomfortable yeah. by the prospect of like when we were at like episode 40 or something like that of being like, oh, listen to our podcast because we're we're because it just. But like, yeah, now that we're over the 100 hump, I feel like it's a little more. Uh, understandable to be like, no, seriously, we're doing this. So, <laughs> and we're doing it with or without you. That's so. right. You know, oh. 2018. That's going to be the year we get like 10 listeners. Hell yeah! Yeah. All right. So, at any rate, um, myself and Nick sat down and rewatched what I believe is an absolute classic uh, this evening, and now we're going to talk a little bit about it, and that is the 1995 film Heat. Uh, directed by Michael Mann and starring Al Pacino and Robert De Niro. <laughs> I was say directed by Michael Mann and somebody oh, else. Oh, no. Sorry about that. And I was like, whoa, who well, else was there? For this specific film, as much as it absolutely is a Michael Mann film and it is hitting all of the notes of the usual Michael Mann films, yeah. um, this is... The Robert De Niro Al Pacino film. I mean, you've Absolutely. got you've got Godfather Part Two, which is one of the greatest films of all time. Is probably by many people the most celebrated sequel I've ever seen, just mm-hmm. as far as how many people prefer it. Which sure. I'm not in that camp, but I totally understand it. Um, however, that film was much earlier in both. De Niro and Pacino's careers. It's true. They have no screen time. They're not in the same timeline in that film. <laughs> and then they do this film where yeah. they only have one scene together. <laughs> well, okay, two scenes. Two scenes together. I'm making a joke. But, but they have the one major yeah. scene together. Uh, however, this was really... it. It's something because this was putting them in a film together during the height of both of their careers for the most part. I mean... I suppose you could say that they both peaked maybe like five years before this, but I mean, it's they were pretty close to this. There. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, before we talk about the movie... Really quickly, oh, can oh, I mention yes. the other people who are in here? Because actually we yeah. have a, a quite it's a, a large cast. supporting cast here, Absolutely. including Val Kilmer, yep. John Voight, Tom Sizemore, Diane Verona, Amy Brenneman, Ashley Judd, also here include Dennis Haysbert from the Allstate commercials, <laughs> uh, William Fitchner, Tom Noonan, Hank, Hank Azaria, Denny Trejo, Henry Rollins, and also here we have Natalie Portman there we go. in an early role. And this Jackie. was <laughs> this was um, pretty. What was it two years after Leon the Professional? Yeah, I mean this had to have been her second. Mm-hmm. Role or at least big role. Um, so you if have... she was this age when she did the prequels, uh, the Star Wars prequels, the, those movies would kind of make sense. But yeah, no. no, it was the first one. I believe that the first one was four years later. I was gonna say that was nineteen ninety nine. They yeah. were already pushing into the new millennium. <laughs> So, Nick, you were going to lead us off with something, so go right ahead. I mean, this might be opening up a can of worms, but because we're talking about this, I just have a quick question that I feel like we should mull over. Mm-hmm. But if you were to make Heat today, who would be two, and let's just say male titans. I'm not saying we can't include female, but just to recreate the machismo uh, atmosphere of this movie, what would be the equivalent, possibly, of of making a Heat? Because technically, Heat... 
is a remake. A lot of people don't realize that, but technically Michael Mann was remaking a, um, I can't remember if it was a pilot or a TV movie, but he made for TV, in which is the same story. Uh, now, obviously, he kind of made the same story over and over again, <laughs> as far as he was very fascinated with cops and robbers in general, but mm-hmm. he actually does claim that this is basically his second and much better attempt at a story he already did. <laughs> but no, um, I'm curious, what do you think would be kind of the equivalent? I have some ideas in my okay. head. Um, I think, even though it would obviously be a different tone, so to speak, I feel like the Al Pacino character would be played by a George Clooney type, because I still think he's in hit, not prime, but like about to exit the stratosphere as... See, I actually think okay. if you were going to say that, I was actually going to say George Clooney as well, but I was ah. going to say playing the Robert De Niro character, because oh. I think he fits much better in the suave... I mean, okay. Um, the kind of, not Soderbergh, but the criminal, di- you know, that he yeah. has played before. Like, I could totally believe him being someone who could murder somebody, yep. and yet at the same time having a set of rules, and also being very cool about it. Um, I don't think he has, even though he's done the kind of explosive things that Al Pacino does, I don't, I wouldn't buy it necessarily. Yeah. So I think he'd be better in the role of Neil that De Niro plays. I'll admit that if I, if we were to recast these, so to speak, or recast in a reboot, that I don't know that anybody would recapture <laughs> Pacino's outburst, so to speak. But as far as thinking of like two titans uh, going against each other, I'm, I'm kind of circling the drain of George Clooney versus Gary Oldman. Um, And they don't have quite the Hollywood, I don't know, spark that De Niro and Pacino do as far as like them almost crossing paths like we talked about in Godfather Part Mm -hmm. 2. But I I think that would be a, like, you put those two down on a a diner table and there could be something there. And I'm talking like a normal Gary Oldman, yeah. not, not a darkest hour, put him in makeup. and You're talking Air Force One Yeah, Gary just Oldman. like let Leon him go professional crazy. Gary exactly. Yeah. Like, I guess he would be the Al Pacino character in mm-hmm. this. Yeah, no, I, I could definitely see that. Um, that would be I'm with you. Uh, I like the idea of George Clooney. I'm going to go with something that I'd actually rather see. Okay. Um, and I'm, I'm going for people who I like, people yeah. who I think fit the roles yeah. good. First of all, thank you, well. but I'm not an actor. Well, that takes away one of my options. Uh, So, at any rate, I would have Michael Fassbender playing the Robert De Niro role. As I like him in the stoic, serious, I'm leaving in 30 seconds, and yet able to deliver very solid lines throughout. And I'd have one of your absolute favorites, Ben Mendelsohn, playing the Al Pacino role, because I think he can absolutely have those blow-ups and have it be completely believable. Okay. So I'm on board with that idea, but you also have to give him, like, 15 more years. Because like, I think part of what makes Heat special is that they are seasoned. And- which, which, is, which is, I think, what I was going for okay. there, as I'm saying that... Yeah. They wouldn't be the people I would select based on your criteria. Yeah, yeah. But in terms of what I think would be enjoyable to see, that's who I would pick. In that case, I'd watch your movie over mine. Okay. <laughs> okay. But mostly because it's Ben Mendelsohn. I know you love Ben Mendelsohn. I know Dude. your your 
somewhat lukewarm on Michael Fassbender, but I know you don't hate him. When I he's know good, it's, he's it's, good. I was going to say, it's yeah. role-dependent. I agree. I mean, him as Archie Hickox or Steve Jobs, I mean, he can deliver really strong roles. Okay, who's Archie Hickox? Uh, he's his character in Inglorious Bastards. Okay. I, yeah. I couldn't remember the name, but mm-hmm. yep, that makes sense. Yeah, so, yeah, I think that'd be fun, but... I, I like the idea of George Clooney being in a film like this. I don't know who would be his opposite, though. Yeah, to I was, I'll admit I'm stretching with Gary Oldman, but um, I was just trying to think of someone who has a certain uh, pain ash, uh, so to speak. <laughs> I mean, there's a, there's a thing. Uh, Samuel L. Jackson, why couldn't he be one of the two? I mean, I Could feel be. like... Uh, uh, <laughs> I'm, not <laughs> I'm not asking that like he can't be. <laughs> And I'm the gatekeeper of of certain. I mean, I don't know if certain, he could be of certain races know. being in this uh, movie. No, absolutely. Actually, I'm going to take that back now, and I'm going to say it's be. George Clooney and Samuel L. Jackson. There we go. Boom, boom, beautiful. Right. Well, moving we on. It. Yeah, seriously, we're going to talk about the actual movie. Let's now. do it. So, uh, Heat surrounds a group of professional bank robbers who start to feel the heat from police when they unknowingly leave a clue at their latest heists, while both sides attempt to find balance between their personal and professional lives. Unknowingly leave a clue. Yeah, I don't... That is quite a... uh, uh, They murdered three people. I think that's pretty knowing. (laughs) And the only thing is just the guy who got away, but that wasn't at their... Anyway, I'm not going to pick this. Well, yeah. So, um, I guess I'll start. Uh, I think this is an absolute masterpiece. Um, I love this film every time I go see it. Uh, I unfortunately have never gotten to see this in the theater. And this is something that I guess will probably never see the light of day, even in a classic showing. Because it doesn't really we'll have see. that classic status. It, um, it does. I feel like you give it ten more years and it'll feel even more like a, like I don't know, silver screen classic. I mean... I felt lucky enough to see uh, Casino in the theater, but yeah. I feel like that was like a one-off. Once we all forget that Al Pacino and Robert De Niro kind of sold out in their later years, like, it sounds bad. Like, once they're dead, this movie will be, like, in all the retrospectives. Yeah. I agree. I, and, I feel bad for it, too, because, you know, we had a second try in the F. Gary Gray film, I think it was, Righteous Kill, which was an absolute pile of shit. Oh, yeah. yeah, it wasn't oh good. I never saw that, but... It's good for you. And I'll say, we're speaking from people who are in uh, just outside of Chicago, so we're no way in, like, L.A. or New York, where I know for a fact people have seen, like, 35mm prints of this movie, which I would be very down to see. Mm-hmm. So it's not that they don't exist, but it certainly has to be in a, quote-unquote, cinephile area. But, I mean, this is 1995, so you've got Pacino, who is just coming off of Carlito's Way, which is an absolute fantastic gangster film. You have uh, Casino coming out the exact same year, which is right in the Scorsese De Niro wheelhouse of their classic career together it's actually close to the end of it um but at any rate this is really the top uh for both of them as they are joining forces on the same screen in a good film i mean this is for me it's not just about pacino and de niro this is michael mann doing everything that makes him a great film director i mean in uh thief collateral you could name 
10 other Michael Mann films. Black Hat. Yeah, well, I actually don't hate Black Hat. I, I know you don't Black either. Hat. Yeah. I don't love it, but... I guess um, I love it in a very silly way. Yeah. But Michael Mann's got a very distinct view that he shows his audience. And this film is all about that. Um, and the supporting cast uh, is exactly what it should be as it supports the two main characters as we have very clear arcs for our two main characters that move throughout this film but the supporting characters fill all of their roles almost perfectly uh including characters who look ridiculous on the outset like john voigt with his silly hair uh tom sizemore who First looks all, everybody has silly hair in this movie mm-hmm. i'm just saying if you're not the two main characters, if you're even Val Kilmer, he's got his ponytail. Yeah. Uh, Tom Noonan. Yeah, he's got the beard thing going on. Tom Sizemore, he's bald, though. bald, too. Yeah. Which looks weird yeah. on him. Anyway. Tom Sizemore, though, this is the most he's had his act together ever. Like, he looks like he's playing the straight man in this film, which is something. Yeah, it's kind of awkward. Yeah. It, <laughs> and then you have uh, the character of Justine, which is Al Pacino's wife, who has a lot of things going on, uh, as she's clearly a bad mother. Um, yeah. well, we're going to get into that, okay. I think. Because, for me at least, I mean, she's got multiple lines throughout here that lead you to believe that she is just not giving the care that is needed to her daughter. Yeah, I'm not going to dispute that. Mm-hmm. So, but at the end of the day, though, um, this has a very fascinating story for me that moves from start to finish. It has two fantastic heist scenes. Uh, the first one, which involves old hockey ski masks, that kind of thing. Uh, a very interesting finale of that opening scene, which actually is a really nice segue into the second act of this film. And this has one of the top heist slash shootout scenes of all time. And that's something that you can easily say about films is saying, oh, it's the best of all time because there's hundreds of thousands of films out there. But yeah. in reality, this is probably the best shootout scene yeah. of all time. And you still have another 45 minutes to go. And that could be a detriment of this film yeah. for a lot of people. Is that, yeah. Is that there's so much here that you could just end up being checked out at some point. But for me, every single little moment of this film has a payoff in one way or another. Even if I don't love every single scene, um, I feel like it has a purpose. And, um, the two main scenes between Pacino and De Niro completely pay off their characters and live up to the expectations of what this film is attempting to deliver. So yeah, I'm, I'm absolutely 100% uh, on board with this film and think it's an absolute top film. It's of my 50 top films of all time. It's number 11 on my list and it's uh it's an all time favorite for me. Yeah. I am a huge Michael Mann fan, um, and I think part of that is because I absolutely love the Miami Vice pilot. I feel like he revolutionized television as we know it, and then he went straight to film. Like, you know, he did that, and then he brought that same procedural sense of cops and robbers to the big screen, and... 
He really hasn't ever gotten off of that either. No, every once in a while he somehow, I wouldn't say breaks that mold, but goes slightly out of it, whether he does like a period piece like uh, Public Enemies mm-hmm. or I feel like, what did he, uh, Ali, you know, mm-hmm. he does. But other than that, like this is what he excels at. And Heat is probably the pinnacle of what he does best, even if it's not my favorite film of his, but Heat and as he said in interviews, that Heat is actually essentially a remake of uh, one of his old uh, TV pilots or TV movies, um, which is also Man in a Nutshell, which is a perfectionist, someone who sees the finished product of his own and then decides that there is still work to be done on it, which is why I always find characters like uh, Neil and Vincent and even in uh, Thief, James Conn's character, um, like these aren't just cops and robbers. These are tradesmen. These are people who know exactly what they're doing in their job and they are in a lot of ways married to their jobs mm-hmm. as we see in this movie of course. And I love that Michael Mann's and that's or I should say that's where I feel like the most emotionally involved in Michael Mann's film when uh, I feel like he's tapping into that because he's very much like that himself. And Heat is one of those movies that I feel like I like because I think that it is very close to television. And I don't mean that in a quality way, but in that it's three hours, it's epic, it's sprawling, it has a dozen or so supporting characters that all have their own at least mini arcs, if not full arcs. Um, Like, I mean, we follow the Dennis Habert character for a little while, not knowing... I was going to say, if I can jump in real quickly... That's actually probably, for me at least, the most emotional part of this film. Agreed. Because we have that great scene of him and the support he's getting from his wife or girlfriend. We never really get clarification on what their relationship is. But he's just out of jail. He's on parole. And she's just happy to have him back. And at the end of the day, he just wants to do what he wants to do. Agreed, and the people, uh, I should say his support system that's not his partner, are in no way helping him no. <laughs> to you know continue that journey. So, um, But yeah, even his character, who we really don't, I mean, yeah, we can get the sense that he's an ex-criminal, but we don't know how he really ties into this main story until it literally does. Mm-hmm. Um and all of that feels like it, this is like a miniseries condensed into a three-hour opus. And for that reason alone, I, I pretty much love it because I think he handles just about every little part right, including things that I was slightly soft on the first time I watched, like Natalie Portman's character um, and her suicide attempt, where the first time I watched it, I, I, I didn't like hate or anything, but I was kind of like, I don't know if this really fits in the entire... Uh, narrative, but definitely I've seen this film like four times now Mm -hmm. or so, and every time I watch it, I actually like Vincent's entire arc more and more, like between him and his wife, between him and his stepdaughter Lauren, uh, like all of that might be my favorite relationships in the film. What I love about the actual scene when he finds her, um, which is pretty much the inner conflict within Vincent's character, which is so great because in pretty much a seven second span, he says both you're not going to die on me, baby. And what a waste. Yeah. Um, And it's like, that's just who he is as a person as he absolutely wants to take care of her. And he shows that throughout the entire film, but at the same time, he almost despises 
that in a way. That choice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, for sure. And I, what I kind of like about that, too, is that it also just suggests, like, why would she go there in the first place? Because subconsciously, at least, she knows that Vincent's probably the only person that has paid her any uh, forward attention in which he was actually thinking about her and not of whatever it means, like like her mother, like, you know, what it means for her and her Well, and at the same time, too, he is the only person who's really qualified to handle that kind of situation is when he's in a situation that requires attention. Uh, We see it throughout the film, especially, uh, you know, a scene that you could parallel here uh, when he's seen the uh, prostitute's mother after yeah. she's just murdered and he's consoling her, even though that is necessarily his quote unquote job, he's still doing what has to be done to progress, you know, yeah. how things are going, where he is well, a survival person, especially in the scene with Natalie Portman and where she's trying to commit suicide. Um, and he's the, I mean, her her mother, I mean, I'm sorry, but. Throughout the entire film, she displays a lot of traits that are not very great. Yeah. And, okay, I'm going to talk about that, but mm-hmm. I'm going to mention one more thing okay. to connect what, with what you're saying about um, Vincent's character, mm-hmm. which is oh, another step forward is the scene in which he, um, uh, in which Tom Sizemore takes the little girl hostage. Mm-hmm. I love the kind of slow motion shot after Tom Sizemore is shot and taken down that Al Pacino's character basically just grabs the little girl and takes her away from that scene. Like, as, as the leader of that, you know, uh, operation and whatnot in the case, like, he technically has a responsibility to, in some way, call the shots of what's going to happen. But his first survival instinct, as you're saying, is to basically get that little girl away from, from that this. scene yep. and and it's just a little thing and it's not like some kind of like revelation or anything like that but it, yep. it's just completely consistent with his character um i'll say this in defense of the mother mm-hmm. which is that i agree in in that she is not like a great mother but what i like about her is that i think personally the whole thing is that she's been dealt a not great hand and i'm not saying that that's automatic sympathy but taking that as the starting point um, with her and her loser ex-husband, um, I and having her daughter have uh, be uh, susceptible to these uh, mental breakdowns and whatnot, I feel like she is losing her mind because I think she is right in the sense that she has a partner who's not always present. As oh, she, as absolutely. She, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what I love about the ending between Vincent and uh, her is that I feel like Justine, by the way, Oh, Justine. Mm -hmm. And what I love about that ending between Justine and, and Vincent is that I feel like her letting him go and, and finish the case, so to speak, is also her realizing that, well, you know what? I should probably be more present for my daughter. So even if it's like a, you know, a rough journey to get there, I feel like she was just a person going through a rough patch, uh, so to speak. And someone who understands, is able to extend her empathy to her partner and then uh, basically flash it back to herself as to where she can uh, shine it from that point on. So I guess that's where where I'm defending her. But throughout the film, for sure, I'm not saying she's... Yeah, and I think that, for me at least, uh, means that her character was just played well, is that she's 
uh, played very unusually by Diane Verona. Yeah. Or, sorry, Diane Venora. This would so usually that, be a throwaway character mm-hmm. in, in a lot of these kind of movies. So I've got a lot more yeah. to get to uh, in regards to our main characters and the main crew. Uh, and then the finale. Yep. Um, however, I wanted to hit on a couple of the female characters first, as they might get pushed aside because of some of the other things throughout here. Uh, we have Amy Brenneman's character of Edie, and then also Ashley Judd's character of Charlene, uh, who both play somewhat pivotal roles through this film. Absolutely. Uh, in differing degrees. I actually feel like uh, the character of Edie was somewhat... Uh, underutilized yeah, in this film is I, that. I think the the moment in the final scene is is definitely clear of what's happening with de niro and her but at the same time we see so little of their relationship that it doesn't really have that big of an impact on the viewer the idea that he goes back to her apartment mm-hmm. or place it's his apartment is it hmm? Oh, I was thinking it was hers. No. Because I, I saw all her like graphic design stuff, so I guess she just moved in. Uh, anyway. Yeah. Well, the idea that he would let her move in, <laughs> either yeah. way. Uh, but that still doesn't, at least for me, it doesn't really help me is for what I'm visually seeing throughout the film, which is I feel like I've only seen her on screen for six minutes. Well, that's what I mean the, as far the, as the ending. we get their meet cute, and then we get uh, Robert De Niro and... Uh, Al Pacino seen him in a diner where he basically said, like, he doesn't have time for that. So it's like, well, then when did you make time for that? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm with you there. Um, although I do quite enjoy their scenes together. Mm-hmm. Like, I like everything that they have together, even though I'm with you in that there could have been a few more. In, in a film that I feel is a five out of five for the most part, I mean, it's a very small critique. Ashley Judd's character, I think, is actually fantastic in this film. Um, she has the very um, unhealthy relationship with Val Kilmer as yeah. they have a child together. Val Kilmer is obviously a gambling addict and also commits robberies uh, to get his gambling money, um, which is such a very, such a very weird thing that somebody commits robberies to just hand money over to yeah, people. Yeah, it's like he's bad at one thing mm-hmm. and then he's obviously great at another yeah. so he has to do the other thing only to supply his right. really horrible uh, yeah. affectation. Which is and we see that uh, completely come back at him early in the film as he's passed out drunk, given away all the money, had the horrible scene with Ashley Judd early in the film and then she is cheating on him. And that's what's so great is Hank Azaria as the person that she's cheating on him with. <laughs> yep. And Mo Sislak is not always the number one <laughs> we should be leaving. Still pretty hunky Val Kilmer for. But yet here we are is this. And he's also the shady Las Vegas businessman. would sell her and her husband down the river like yeah it's it's great how that whole dynamic works together but um i love the scene with her and de niro where he tells her basically to get her life together and give chris another not necessarily because he's telling her that but because um it's such a vulnerable scene for both him and her because he chris is one of the few people that he genuinely cares about at least in my opinion okay 
And for her, um, she really has nowhere to go and she's in this really weird spot and yet she's got this weird crime boss just telling her what to do at the end of the day she's got no other options but to listen to him we're gonna say sorry i was gonna ask you with that scene in the hotel between de niro and judd is is there any part of you that thinks that uh neil is doing that not because he cares about chris but because he just wants his next job to go well I'm curious as far as which side do you think is overpowering the other, like his, because um, I, I can see it going either way as yeah, far as whoever. I personally think it's because he cares more about Chris. I can see that. I think he could have taken or leaving the final job, to be totally honest with you. Yeah. Like, I think he could have went to New Zealand and um, found a way to make it work. And but just it was only because everybody good. else quote-unquote needed it or or wanted in and i love that scene as i mentioned when we were watching the film uh he actually goes out of his way to tell tom sizemore's character don't you shouldn't do this i mean he's pretty much telling him not to and he ends up doing it he's the one who actually gets murdered during that scene yeah um but no i feel like he's saying that to ashley judd's character because he genuinely does care for chris i mean we even see in the final uh, scene with him and Nate, uh, John Voight's character, where he actually asks about where is he, and John Voight says, oh, he left, and he's he seems genuinely That's concerned, true. and I think he actually is, yeah. because he he's the one person throughout this film, well, I mean, I think he cares about all of the main crew that is with him, other than Winger, obviously. But not in the same way. No, I mean, I think he, he and Val Kilmer's character of Chris I mean, He was are, ready to kill Danny Trejo and a second if he found out uh that which he did a mercy killing of him then yeah, yeah. um but that's just another part of this film that's just so great is that you have pretty much all of the cards being dealt throughout i mean you have betrayal you have um family life just going well going horribly i mean this is this is like a true gangster film in the middle of a cops and robbers film yep. uh, and it works together so well. Absolutely. Did you have anything to, to add other than what we discussed about uh, the two female leads throughout this? Um, I have two things. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I guess there's three. Fem- we already hit on a little bit of um, Al Pacino's wife. So I, yeah. I didn't mean to dis- no, no, no. not include her, but no, no, no yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I say the two other things I would mention as to why I think this movie is fantastic is um, one, as we're talking about the cops and robbers, uh, this is in no way anything that not only Michael Mann has not done, but also just any other person who's made crime fiction. But the way Michael Mann parallels uh, the thieves versus the cops are just, in my opinion, too delicious to ignore. There, um, There's a scene, I think, toward the mid-section of this movie in which we see the criminals at a certain party where they're all around a table Mm -hmm. and um, we see uh, Tom Sizemore interacting with his wife and child, right? Yeah. Yeah. And and, uh, various other characters. And then we also see, I think about 10 minutes later, uh, the cops at their own sort of party. And 
there is something about the blocking of those two scenes that I absolutely love, in which the criminals are more composed. Like they don't really leave their tables. They're they're sitting there and you know they're enjoying their comfortable. meal. Exactly, they are very comfortable in their place, and they are also very aware of how they're being perceived uh, by everybody else in the room. Whereas the cops are kind of like sloppy drunks, and 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 it's never in a way where it becomes a caricature. It's not like they're like on professional or something like that but just the way the one cop with the mustache who gets killed in mm-hmm. the shootout but like him and his wife right he's sticking his face in her breast yeah and, like yeah. that little thing and whatnot and um, even al pacino who, who's not doing anything wrong but like gets up to dance with his wife there, there's a i don't different know tone yeah a different tone that makes me really appreciate how this movie kind of i wouldn't say sides with the criminals, but kind of sheds a slightly somber tone on like how composed these people are who have to do this job, which Robert De Niro gives that monologue, of course, about how you have to be willing to walk away and whatnot, but how the cops are the ones who are slightly more decadent and slightly more uh, just uh, thoughtless in their work, uh, which I absolutely love. And it, it doesn't make either one of the parties wrong or right, but it, it's just a beautiful thing because they're not like, I think a lesser director would have cross cut between them, like would have had the parties happening at the exact same time and whatnot. But it's really like a 10 minute sequence before we even get to the next. It, it, there's other events that happen in between. Exactly. So it's more of just an echo and, and, if you don't notice it, you don't notice it. But I, I absolutely love that. Um, one other thing I'll mention um, is that uh, as a white person, I don't know that I really have the credibility to comment on this. But Are you going to go in on Tone Loke here? Ooh, uh, kind of, but <laughs> not Tone Loke specifically. Um, but I got to admit the uh, the representation of people of color in this movie is not as bad as it could have been. Like, like nothing in this movie for me is problematic, and this is, that this is Los Angeles, right? Yes, this is. I mean, that's Michael Mann's wheelhouse. Exactly, is Los Angeles. Yes. Yep. And LA this is Cops. right in the wheelhouse of the Rodney King riots. Yes. of that era, and it's basically sidelined here. True. Right? Yeah, but I, I'll just say this: all of the people of color in this supporting cast have some dignity that I feel like a lot of white male directors would not have really afforded to them. I'm in, I, I'm just saying uh, there are a lot of memorable moments with the supporting cast. For example, Tone Locke, who I actually think is great in his little role, but even before that, his brother, who I don't know who plays that, but um, when he's having his role... I don't know why, but I love the costume design for all of these characters because they are not trying to play the gangbanger uh, trope, so to speak. What what I love about the early scene, and I don't know his character's yeah. name or the actor's name, what I love about that scene is uh, Al Pacino arrives, and this is other than the amazing line with him and Hank Azaria, where he says, and we've brought it up multiple times, that she's got a great ass! <laughs> um, this, the scene that you are referring to, which comes about 30 minutes into this film, where he has a very showy scene uh, with the uh, the black guy early mm-hmm. on. Um, he's very well dressed and well put together, but he's in this really weird place. It looks like an abandoned, almost junkyard. Um, but at the same time, he's he's 
has it together. He's not a yeah. drug dealer. He's not a piece of shit. Like he's just a he's just a guy who's trying to make a living. Well, I was gonna I was gonna say uh, work off his debts to the police more because yeah. it seems like even if he's a bad person, he's obviously figured out the system in a way. Agreed. So, yeah. Well, and I like the idea that uh, even in that scene, he literally tries to plead empathy from <laughs> the one uh, African American cop who's uh, the partner, or at least one of his coworkers, mm-hmm. of Al Pacino. And even him, you know, he's just like, I'm not having it. But he doesn't even seem like mad about that or anything. He's not like disgusted by that claim. He's just like, uh, nope. Um, and and moving forward too, the um, the scene like you mentioned earlier with the one uh, at the hotel with after the prostitute is murdered mm-hmm. with the mother. Um, that's a, one of the best scenes in the entire movie where Al Pacino comforts her. And that like I don't know I I could just see so many ways that that scene could go wrong like with a very shrewd, uh, just obnoxious yelling mother like. Yeah, I'm just all I'm saying is I've seen that scene a lot, but I haven't seen it quite as subdued. Um, and of course, it extends also to Dennis Haybert, who in no way is defined by his race mm-hmm. uh, for the most part, at least. I, we can't necessarily say that race is never a factor in anything, but um, that he is just a criminal. And and all I'll say this is that for a movie from like 1995, directed by a white guy, I was pretty surprised that uh, a it included as much. Uh, people of color as it did, which was not necessarily enough, but it's quite a bit. Yeah. And B, that they were all quite uh, dignified, which is more than you can ask they from, from that era. It's better than a lot of movies that are coming out today. Yeah, they weren't hitting all the stereotypes yeah. as hard as they would have been in a cop film in the 1990s. Agreed, so. Um, I will say uh, another slight thing against this film. Yeah. Uh, I feel like it was really lazy just to give Wangro a swastika tattoo. I feel like you're yeah. trying to build a character saying, oh, he's a racist. He's a bad guy. Right, right. He's the he's the real villain. Right. I mean, there are dumb people who aren't white supremacists. <laughs> well, but at the same time, I feel like he's built up being one of the main antagonists. Is If you really look at it, and this is a three-hour film that kind of doesn't really have a true villain, even though Robert Turner is supposed to be, but he's actually the weird Robin Hood hero. I mean, uh, Wangro and uh, William Fitchner's character are the true villains of this film throughout the entire story. And yet... I felt like just including his swastika tattoo, it just, for me, was just lazy. I'll agree with that, especially because he was with an African-American mm-hmm. prostitute. I feel like that was more, not shock value, like like he took off his shirt and you were like, whoa, or whatever. But mm-hmm. if it was slightly more just mundane, like he was just with a white you know, proud suit, and like that was just a thing that was there. Like that would have been slightly okay, but I agree with you in the sense that it felt slightly. And I'll admit, you know, we're living in interesting times right now, where that's like back in the focal point. Like, uh, I'll say this: uh, I watched some an episode. Sorry to do a tangent, but mm-hmm. I watched an episode. We never do that here. No, I watched an episode of Lou Grant, the spinoff from Mary Tyler Moore, okay. st- starring Ed Asner, which was a journalism Ooh, show. Wow, Ed Asner. Oh, yeah, he's great in it. Uh, But it's a journalism show. He plays the head of a paper, you know, whatnot. So anyway, there was an episode in the very first season, which was in the 70s, uh, in which he is 
trying to get his reporters to follow up on a Nazi rally, mm. which is crazy because you watch that episode from back in the 70s, and they are treating this like they're so surprised that this is still happening. And that in and of itself is not surprising because you're like, you can understand why anybody would think that. But it, it's so weird to watch something like that in 2017, 2018. And it's the same way when you watch like this movie where this guy now has a swastika, where now it, it has slightly different connotations, where we're now like, oh, no, they have their own Facebook pages now. <laughs> it's it's a little less... Uh, the president didn't condemn them. Yeah, it's, it's exactly. So it, it's funny that you bring that up because it's, it's, it's slightly creepy how, like, unshocking that is and you're just like ah oh, that's lazy writing when in normal in a normal world that should not be lazy it should just be like ah i mean it is like ah but at the same time true i guess i feel like it's lazy writing because it is a black female yeah. prostitute yeah, yeah. it is a guy who we see very little of but i feel like in the 90s it wouldn't have been like mm great or it would have been crazy uh, no I, I guess that's more what i'm saying about okay. why i feel like it's lazy writing gotcha. because it's we are we are showing this character who we see six minutes of early on who's yeah. supposed to be the big villain in this yeah. film and he just happens happens to be, to be a nazi for sure yeah, yeah. no no I, i'm okay i'm with you there okay so. cool so uh before we go to our final ratings uh hitting on a couple big things from this film the big showy things uh the shootout scene following the big uh heist that happens at the bank um this is how you do a shootout scene and for anybody who tries to do a scene like this uh and tries to not do similar things that like michael mann is trying to do here you are failing because this is just the way to do it like this is what a film version of a bank heist or really any heist should look like. Like it should be aggressive. It should be loud. It should be, it should be horrible. Like there should be casualties. There should be civilians that are getting killed because this is just how I would imagine that this would happen. Like if there's this huge machine gun shootout in the middle of a bank in a downtown area, it should spill over into a grocery store. Like it, it, it should be this chaotic atmosphere, which I feel like Michael Mann perfectly captures in the seven-minute scene or so that just is perfect in almost every single shot from the way the guns look to the way they sound. I mean, the sound of the guns here is just what every person who's having a gunfight should strive for in a film. In the city square with the echo and the the light coming out of the guns i mean it's just perfect and it's for the most part both robert de niro and al pacino's nightmare like it is it is the last thing that either of them wanted to happen in this situation because even though robert de niro is willing to have people killed and 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 to kill people for his job i don't think he's a serial killer like he's He's just trying to do his job. He wants to do his job as we get in the scene just 10 minutes prior with him and Al Pacino. And yet at the same time, we have this clusterfuck that happens. And um, that's that's this is what happens to people who 
rob banks, even if they are the best bank robbers out there, is that eventually you're going to get caught. And that's just the way it usually goes because that's life. Agreed. Uh, One thing I love about the shootout Mm -hmm. is um, so the very first, I guess not shootout, but kind of, but the heist of the armored truck with the bank, which I actually, I don't know that I prefer it to the second. It's great. But I kind of like when I'm watching that, I'm like even more amazed because I'm always kind of forgetting that it opens with such a great sequence. It's a great setup that is you know, executed to perfection and yeah. yet still ends in a disaster. Agreed. Mm-hmm. And so one thing I love about that is that it's Wayne Grow that escalates that entire situation where he decides that he'll kill a cop because the cop is staring at him, which is just awful. And obviously even, uh, I think it's Tom Sizemore, right? Yeah, absolutely. That points out See that, that shit for others. They can't fucking hear you. Yeah. That, uh, that points out that Wayne Grow is crazy and you know, whatnot. So one thing I love about the second shootout is that people die once again because of Wayne Grow. If Wayne Grow hadn't have technically sold them out mm-hmm. for no real reason other than just the place wouldn't have been there. Right. Uh, then like, and, and I'm not saying that I root for Neil to get away with it, but as far as like, I agree between the two of them that Pacino's character and Tenero that there is a professionalism that there's this unspoken bond between them that none of them, like you just said, want it to go that way. And once again, a crazy fucking person has just escalated this into a uh, in, into a just horrible disaster zone. And yet, um, I you know just like the Coen brothers show throughout their films uh, in a way. Although they do it a little more over the top than Michael Mann does. I mean, all this could have been avoided if they just would have killed Wayne Grow and been done with it early in the first scene of this film. And yet that cop just randomly shows up and fucks up their plans. You know, the more I I watch this movie, the more I actually love that scene where Wayne Grow gets away. Because, you know, you made the joke, which is totally understandable, where it's like he didn't put his foot down on it. Like, you know, how does Robert De Niro just not look down for being such a professional? Yep. But I love the idea that the diner is kind of a mythical place for him in which he is caught off guard, whether it's from him meeting his love interest or him allowing uh, the... Uh, the cop, Al Pacino, uh, Vincent, to let him buy him coffee. It's even where he finds Dennis Haysbert's character, who's yes. like the quick replacement driver. Agreed. So yeah. I actually, like, the more I watch, the more I think that's actually a brilliant moment in the way that this diner is somehow this uh, place in which he loses himself. But I love, I do love the build up to that part of the film in that specific scene because. Uh, we see Val Kilmer and Tom Sizemore walk out to the streets, the different spots, yeah. to make sure that they're keeping an eye out for anything. Uh, and then we have Danny Trejo opening the car with the garbage bags ready to go for the package to be delivered. Yep. Um, and they are very much ready to kill him. And it's it's very thought out. Like, and, they've clearly decided what's going to happen. And it, it's, uh, like uh, Tom Sizemore says, very tight crew yeah uh, they they are all in it together for and the i love part. in the diner when um they first meet um i i know the first time i watched it because i'm just whatever i had no idea that they were gonna try to kill him right at that moment mm-hmm. obviously once you get out to the 
uh, parking lot is pretty clear. But I like how every time you rewatch it and you know that that's what that scene is, like that everything just kind of becomes much more clear. Like the way Tom Sizemore just gets up from the uh, booth and just sits at the counter. The look he gives uh, the other patron, Tom Sizemore, that is, when he just kind of leans over and looks at him like, the fuck you looking at? Oh, man. See, and that's the real sad thing because Tom Sizemore is a huge piece of shit Mm -hmm. and he is just a total fuck up and he deserves nothing for the most part. But, man, when he was trying to give a good performance back in the good old days. Especially as criminals. Yeah. Well, yeah. But... He was good in these yeah. little supporting roles, especially in this film. I mean, he's for me, he's fantastic, and he's good in other films. Like, I think he's good in Saving Private Ryan too. But yeah, yeah, that specific scene is great for sure. And uh, yeah, no, I'm a huge fan of that. And then we have the the final scene. Uh, we we, we mm. talked a little bit about the diner scene, but we have the final scene between Neil and Al Pacino, which I think really actually gets to the crux of what this film. Uh, is going for through its entirety, but never really goes out of its way to tip its hand at yeah. until the very final scene, uh, which is... And even that... It's a little bit ambiguous. Yeah, I was going to say, have, that could be read a different... Yeah. But way. for me, at least personally, uh, I guess it's hard for me to say it's ambiguous because I feel like yeah. it's so clear uh, that the ending just shows this idea that Good versus evil, cops versus criminals, the idea that these people's livelihoods would not be what they are without each other yeah. is is so profoundly shown in the final scene, but it doesn't really feel to me like it's even necessarily more than hinted at throughout the rest of the film, but yet it's clear as day in the very final moments of this film. So. No, yeah. I absolutely agree, especially in the way that I, I think what you're referencing when it comes to how it's not quite hinted at is that I feel like that's both true and not true in the sense that it's you're right and that that's kind of what I love about it so that when it happened, it's literally just because Robert De Niro is dying. So he's just like, please, you know? Yeah. Like, like, And so that's why I love how that moment works on a micro level as far as just compassion and empathy of you know one person knowing that he's one and therefore he doesn't need to do anything further and can at least help some person's last moment be at least slightly dignified but also on a macro level that it further pushes that point of how the you know there's a thin blue line between the cops and the thieves and i absolutely love how all of that takes place in a um I guess it's in the airport. It's it's kind of off to the it's side. A, it's a really weird situation because he's supposed to be driving to the airport, but then he yeah. turns around to go to the hotel, but then he's at an airport. Yeah, so it's but really, anyway. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the fact that it all happens within uh, lights and shadows, it, it's just gorgeous and also thematically relevant for a reason that we can probably tackle an entire other episode on. Oh, yeah. Um, but, God, that's a great scene. And before we get into final ratings, mm-hmm. I also want to say my personal favorite scene is really tiny. But I absolutely love the scene in which um, uh, Vincent uh, 
is following Neo and his crew in the cargo shipyard. Yes. And they're trying to figure out what they're doing and like what their next score is going to be. And then they, uh, Neo and everyone leaves. And so Vincent goes down there to see their vantage point, which is also thematically coherent because he's trying to figure out, see, you know, what they see. And the way he builds up the, do you know what they're looking at? Because he says it like five times. And I remember when I watched this with my father, who had never seen it before this summer, one of my favorite moments in any watching movie, whatever, Mm -hmm. is watching this with him. And during that scene, every time, like by the second time, Pacino would say, you know what they were looking at? My dad would literally go, what? Because he just kept saying it over and over. And then finally when Pacino says, like, Oh, he's looking at us. My dad went, oh. It was just like that pitch-perfect reaction, which (laughs) is just like – and that's how I was the first time I watched it. And I absolutely love that because I don't need – like even though I'm not the biggest fan of crime dramas, um, obviously like the pinnacle of crime drama for me is like a Mm Soderbergh-esque deconstruction of the cleverness behind it. Like if you're not – out of sight, then? Exactly. Okay. Something like that, or Ocean's Eleven, or mm-hmm. something where like I feel like I'm being outsmarted in some way. Um, and if you're not going to do something like that, this is basically the best you can do. And I say that not because it's inferior, but just this is what I would at least want out of a straightforward crime drama, which is that I get a sense that these this, I don't know, tug of war is in some way petty and um, superficial in some way because when he's down there figuring out that you know they're uh, making all these cops just by looking at them, uh, I love the way that this just elevates this entire operation into something that is inescapable. Like it's such a small gesture, but it's such a personal one, and I absolutely love the way Pacino plays it. So I'm a huge fan of this movie in general, and that scene is probably when the movie like just completely peaks into a and it it's no um coincidence that it's this scene that leads into him chasing him down on the freeway to get a cup of coffee because yeah. it's from that point on that these two are now entangled in, yeah there's into each other. there's they know who each other is so why not just yeah bury the hatch which is great no bullshit so, going to ratings, um, I said it pretty much earlier, but this is a 5 out of 5 film for me. Um, this is one of my favorite films of all time, which you know, I've been fortunate enough to talk about quite a few of them uh, with you and with Tucson and other people on this podcast. But um, this is a film that I could really watch any day out of the week, which is really something because this is a 2 hour and 53 minute film that is a little bit of a chore at parts but at the same time it's a chore in a different way than watching something like the godfather or all the president's men or something like that uh where this film to me feels like at every turn there's at least something to keep your interests even if you have some scenes that are a little bit i don't want to say boring but not you know the most exciting scenes either a they get paid off later on or You've got a extraordinary action sequence or a profound uh, meeting between De Niro and Pacino. I mean, you have so many different types of excellent scenes throughout this film, and they're all tied together in a very nice way uh, from beginning to end. And really, you get 
clarity on, for the most part, every character, even though there are so many minor characters in this film. Um, and as someone who loves De Niro's almost entire uh, career up until things really fell off, which is probably around Meet the Fockers. Yeah, that's about uh, it. Yeah. <laughs> and, I mean, he's had a couple winners since then, but for the most part, before that... He we'll was see what happens with the Scorsese Netflix production. Yeah. I'm more interested to see what's going to happen with Joe Pesci, to be honest yeah, with you. But, yeah. I, you know, that whole thing, though, is so bizarre. Yep. That, like, I could see that being, like, one of the greatest movies of that year that it comes out, or one of the worst. Like, I really don't think there's going to be a middle ground. Yeah. Because if you recapture what those people are in their prime, then fantastic. But if yeah. you fall short of that, what is the point? I'm, I guess, to go off on a little bit of a tangent of yeah. my own, since we're, we're on it now, yeah. um, I'm I'm not going to doubt Marty until he proves me wrong. No, I'm, yeah. I mean, I didn't even love a thing, a film like Silence, but at the mm-hmm. same time, I didn't mind watching that. I thought yeah. it was a well-done film. And, Can understand why he made it. And, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and he, even the films that some people don't love, um, even something that won Best Picture, like The Departed, um, I always enjoy sitting down and watching what he has to offer. Okay. So I find it hard to believe that it's going to be a fucking train wreck. But at the same time, uh, those set photos didn't do much for me. Yeah, I mean, that's the worst part is that something that should be in some way enticing, mm-hmm. like leaked set photos, mm-hmm. it just has the exact opposite effect. I'll say this. I mean, like, when you had the leaked set photos of Avengers Age of Ultron, of, like, Thor's hammer getting pointed at the sky, like, yeah. that wasn't very exciting. No. Um, it's a much different kind of But film. there's something about... Robbie and who else is in that? Joe Pesci Pacino. and uh, Pacino. Mm-hmm. That like they are not Easter eggs, <laughs> you know. Like they're in no way something that where you see them in their current state, and you're just like, oh, thank God they're in this movie because unfortunately they made some pretty bad choices in yep. their in their past decade. But all those choices didn't involve Scorsese either. True. So, which is why we'll I'll give see. it the benefit of the doubt until Absolutely. I'm we'll proven otherwise. It. Yep. <laughs> well, especially it's on Netflix. That's uh, even yeah. makes it that much easier. <laughs> so yeah, I give this film a five out of five. I love this. Uh, it is 100% um, the pinnacle of the era between Pacino and De Niro, even though I like Casino more in a De Niro film the idea that these two titans of this time uh, got together in this film and gave these performances, even if they're not fabulous performances at the end of the day, they are completely knocking out of the park what this film is trying to do. Um, So it's a fantastic film that I absolutely adore and give five out of five. Yeah. uh, The first time I saw this movie was I watched it with Alex as he kept, telling me I should watch it and obviously I did not regret it and I gave it three and a half the second time I watched this I gave it four and I gotta say this time I'm gonna give it four and a half out of five yeah. and I feel like that's the ceiling for me like okay. I'm never gonna necessarily think of it as my favorite man film because Thief for me takes that title Especially because the things I love about this movie, I just get a little more out of in Thief from my personal perspective when it comes to the marriage of 
uh, a criminal to his work and trying to balance that with his uh, home life because there's a lot of that in Thief. Um, but overall, this is just a, um, an amazing movie with so much talent brimming from it. And I gotta say, for a movie that is pretty much three hours long in a genre that I don't really care for, uh, it just it goes by so quick. And any scene that I have a problem with, which are not specific scenes that I can just like point out automatically, but any scene that maybe drags on or whatever, like by the time it's over, I kind of forgot that I had a problem with it because the the whole of this movie works so well that. I am totally on board for all of its tangents, all of its mini arcs, and mostly because its two characters are so well defined that they uh, lift everybody around them. So uh, I absolutely love this movie. I think it's uh, fantastic. It's definitely, I think, even if it's not my favorite man film, it's the pinnacle of what he does. Like, this is the thesis of man, you know? If he mm-hmm. went to college, this would be his student film, so to speak. And so I, I, I think it's fantastic, and there's really no arguing that. So, yeah, four and a half out of five for me. Sweet. Well, if you out there have any thoughts on this film, and likely you've got some positive and maybe some negative thoughts on them, we'd love to hear them because... um we love this movie. So yeah. let's hear what you have to say. Send it on to us at filmtankshow at gmail.com. Ironically, we're doing this in January, and mm-hmm. it's probably going to be released by February, which would mean we're doing a February favorite. Oh, yeah. Because there you one go. of your favorites. Hey, it is. <laughs> well, well done. We've got a plan for uh, the yeah, other other we things we're reviewing. We're, we're making our way to our top six episode of we 2017. Sure I mean, that's the problem when you have schedules and films that are limited releases and that kind of thing. Fucking and you've got Phantom Thread. Paul, I was going to say, you got Paul Thomas Anderson <laughs> and Daniel Day-Lewis, which is one of your favorite directors. Ooh, one of, one yeah. of One of my favorite actors, and not necessarily because he's one of the best actors of all time, which most people probably wouldn't argue, yeah. I don't think. Um, but at the same time, I always love the performances he gives on, so yeah. I'm in the same boat as you for a little different reasons, but I also like yeah. Paul Thomas Anderson. So I mean, it's going to be an event yeah. either way. Yeah. Um, and we also have Itania to look forward to that we're planning to do an episode on. And this coming week, we're planning to uh, get together finally, as we've meant to do our episode on it for, I don't know, two or three weeks now. It's but been a while. Finally. It's been a while. Oh, man. Hitting that stained. Yeah. Right on. I stole that from Comedy Bang Bang sure. because they sing that all the time. That's too bad. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, uh, our friend Sam is going to join us next week as we plan to see The Shape of Water uh, and review with her, I think, like a month ago. And it just didn't happen because it wasn't wide released. But now it is, for the most part, everywhere. Yeah. And she's seen it and we've seen it and we're probably going to see it again. And we're going to talk about it on our next episode as... Uh, it's a very um, easy to talk about Guillermo del Toro yeah. film, I think. Yeah, I think we all liked it. I think so, too. I mean, like, I'm not trying to, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, Tucson like was on Crimson the Crimson ep- Peak, so to well, speak. Well, I was going to get to that. Uh, Tucson was on the episode as well, but me, you, and Sam reviewed Crimson Peak two years ago. Yes. Um, and there were varying opinions on that. Say, we, there were the battle lines were drawn. Which... 
Which I was right. You guys were wrong. Thanks. No, well, Sam liked it. You guys liked it, and I was a little bit negative. But I don't think out of the Guillermo del Toro films, I don't think anybody thought that that was his best work or anything like no. that. We're not saying that Shape of Water necessarily is, but at the same time, I think he's aiming to somewhere that he was also aiming for in something like Pan's Labyrinth. It's, a much, it's probably his most crowd-pleasing movie, which I don't okay. mean as a negative, but just as far as broad appeal. Yeah. Um, I've got thoughts, and yeah. I know you do too, so we'll, uh, we'll head Let's on to the next right week. now. Well, Sam can't be here right now. Oh, okay. Never mind. We'll wait. Okay. So that's coming up on our next episode. You can always find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Film Tank Show. And uh, I already mentioned our email address, but you can find us and email us at filmtankshow at gmail.com. From Nick Cheney and myself, Alex Diekman, thank you very much for catching up with us here at Film Tank, and we'll catch up with you next time. (laughs) 